Good evening, everybody. Uh, I'm delighted to welcome you to the LSE and to the Law Department. Um, it's my pleasure to introduce this evening's um, session, which is about the question, what's to be done about fake news in politics? Um, and uh, this is a recorded um, session and there will be a podcast in due course. Um, uh, and this is part of a series that the LSE is doing on shaping the post-COVID world, as you may be able to see there. Um, and um, I'm delighted to introduce, without further ado, our speakers. Um, I will be your chair. Uh, I'm a professor of criminal law and teach at the LSD. Um, and I am particularly honoured and delighted to welcome Chi Onwura, who is the Shadow Minister for Science, Research and Digital and Labour MP for Newcastle-upon-Tyne Central, where she's been the MP since 2010. She is a graduate of Imperial College and a former head of telecoms tech at Ofcom. Um, and uh, I hope you might mind me adding that in 2018, um, she was Computer Weekly's most influential woman in the UK, uh, along with three others, but we won't worry about that. Uh, so, <laughs> so it's a real pleasure to have someone of her um, standing and expertise here to um, uh, pass my on this particular issue. Um, I'm also uh, delighted to welcome um, our uh, resident LSE expert in this area, uh, Professor Andrew Murray, uh, Deputy Head of Department and an advisor to the House of Lords Communication Committee inquiry regulating in a digital world. We will also be joined in due course um, by um, US Professor Kate Plonick, who is a professor at St. John's University Law School and a fellow at Yale Law School's Information Society Project. And she is a leading scholar and commentator in the US on social media and big tech law and theory. And um, I'm very much looking forward also to hear what she has to say and what we might be able to learn um, from someone in a, a First Amendment jurisdiction. Um, so um, let me, without um, further ado, uh, uh, start with often. What, what I want to do just as, as chair is spend just five minutes uh, setting out what you might call the legal background to fake news. What is it currently possible to do in legal terms uh, if you feel that false information has been put out um, of a political nature um, that has affected your vote, uh, the way you voted or affected you as a candidate? You know, what can you do? Um, and um, very briefly, uh, what's interesting about this whole area is that there are actually um, four different ways in which the law impacts on fake news in politics. First of all, uh, and probably familiar to most of you, there is the private civil law of defamation. Uh, if you feel that someone's made a false statement about your character that has um, uh, adversely impacted it in the way the law understands that, then you can... Um, take action in civil law, of course. Um, and in particular, in election campaigns, uh, the law gives you, makes it easier for you to get an injunction to stop the repetition of the false statement. Um, so there is a particular political dimension to the way that defamation law works in um, political campaigns. Um, that's um, private law. Um, but also you might be interested to, you might not realise that the criminal law gets involved a little bit here as well. Um, under uh, more than one act of parliament, uh, it's a criminal offence to make um, a false statement that causes someone um, undue anxiety, uh, for example, so a kind of intimidation offence. 
But beyond that, um, in the Representation of the People Act 1983, one of the main statutes governing elections, it makes it a criminal offence to make a false statement about the personal conduct or character of um, a candidate uh, for election. Um, it's what you might call the election defamation offence. So even though in this country we don't have an offence of criminal defamation generally, uh, that was abolished in 2009 by the, the um, Labour government, um, we do still retain uh, the election defamation offence. Um, uh, and, um, and it's still used, I can assure you. Um, so that's the criminal law, um, and Parliament is currently intending to beef that up a little bit uh, by, focus, by its focus on intimidation in particular, um, a particularly unpleasant, uh, nasty uh, activity that does occur at election times. Thirdly, there's public law, um, and some of you may not realise that the courts have had, since the 19th century, the power to overturn an election as a whole, uh, whether a, a, in a, a general or a local election or a mayoral election, um, uh, they can overturn the election on the grounds, uh, amongst other things, that there was fraud uh, and that the election was um, uh, attributable to fraudulent misstatements. Um, so that is power that the courts have. They can also, in the case of um, uh, one candidate who makes a false claim about the other uh, and then goes on to win the election, they're also entitled to um, basically kick the candidate out of office uh, and that candidate will not be allowed to stand again in the election rerun. Um, so the courts have significant public law powers in this area, in fact, um, and they use them uh, uh, on a fairly regular basis. Finally, of course, there's something of very topical interest indeed, and that is uh, regulatory law. Um, that is the powers that bodies like Ofcom have to or will have in the future to regulate uh, disinformation and misinformation online. Um, these laws have been in force in Germany, uh, for example, since 2017, um, whereby um, big tech companies are obliged to, uh, uh, to take down um, offending content, illegal content, um, amongst other things. Um, I think I would uh, venture to say that the UK's approach, which was published only today in the Online, Harm, um, online Safety Act, uh, the online safety bill, I should say, that the the UK approach is more nuanced, I think, than the German one, um, which imposes an absolute duty to take down offending content. Uh, there won't be a duty quite like that um, uh, across the board in the UK. Um, so it's a little bit more nuanced. Um, but nonetheless, um, the, uh, the Act itself doesn't have very much to say about uh, disinformation and misinformation other than that there's going to be a committee to set up to look at it uh, and to advise Ofcom on steps that it should take to prevent disinformation and misinformation. Um, but uh, the, the online harm is a bit more concerned just with um, protecting free speech and content of democratic importance. Um, uh, whether um, disinformation is content of democratic importance uh, is perhaps something we might come off to discuss. Um, but... Um, I'll uh, finish uh, my, what I've got to say then by just um, underlining, therefore, that the, the law gets involved in a number of different ways in trying to restrict or sometimes prohibit uh, the spread of false information uh, at election times. Um, so there's quite a bit to focus on here. Um, but I will uh, stop now and um, turn over uh, the speaker to Chi on work who can give us more of an insight into the political side of this whole area. Thanks, Jean.
Um, thank you very much, uh, Jeremy, and thanks very much to the uh, LSE uh, for inviting me to take part in today's discussion. And uh, Jeremy, I'm already much better informed just listening to your background uh, remarks, and um, I will not be going into the, uh, if you like, the legislative details, but more talking around the, uh, the, the, the online harms, online safety and the environment and the regulatory environment and the political environment around uh, disinformation, misinformation and fake news. As Jeremy indicated, it's particularly an important uh, day because this, let me see, it's like one and a half inches worth of explanatory uh, notes, impact assessment and, um, and uh, the bill itself, the draft bill itself has just been published, so we're working our way through it, but I'm not sure I would characterize the approach in there as nuanced so much as perhaps non-existent, almost non-existent. But anyway, to start with, you know, just the, so the context I want to set out is that, you know, digital is, at, I'm the Chairman Minister for Digital, and digital is at the heart of almost every policy area now in one way or another. But at the same time, digital is not really for everyone. Labour believes that we can demand more from our digital technologies and build a digital future that is safer, fairer and more inclusive. And the pandemic has accelerated the role that digital and tech plays in all of our lives. I think we've all seen that as a Zoom on now and our social working and family lives have moved online. So online platforms such as, you know, there's Facebook, Google, YouTube, Instagram, Twitter, you know, they play a central part in our lives and a vital role in how we access news and information. Everybody is following uh, live Twitter accounts or on Facebook, um, and yeah, how it also influence how and what we spend our money on, how we contribute to public debate, and how we utilize our spare time. But we have very little control over how the content is created by the tech platforms and delivered to us. And a study by The Independent found that nearly half of all UK adults believe they encounter fake news and disinformation every day. And it's estimated by Facebook themselves that millions of users have been exposed to coronavirus disinformation on their platform. And this is deeply worrying as in fact that there has not, you know, there has not, and there is still not any regulation of online content. Well, self-regulate for so long and self-regulation, I think, has patently failed. I think it's also worth I think, uh, pointing out that most online fake news is perfectly legal, uh, but it can still cause immense harm when amplified and if you're almost like industrialized using digital technology you know, to public health and the democratic process. And so in some ways, maybe asking if it is legal for a platform to promote and spread information is not enough. The question is, you know, how does it need to be and how should it be regulated? And as things stand, and um, today's application notwithstanding, social media platforms are given a huge amount of latitude. Uh, and uh, on the key points here, there's an incentive for social media companies to promote misinformation, even though they, they deny that. But it's due to the sheer, you know, the sheer number of clicks that fake news short stories generate. So the media content that we see is driven by algorithms that target specific audiences for specific content in ways that other jurisdictions, I think, have found to be, um, can be discriminatory. 
Um, and lawmakers and regulators do not know what these algorithms are or how they may be how they may be programmed, uh, and that is a concern. But we do know, and research is just when it comes to online grooming uh, for uh, in for terrorist defences, that uh, Facebook uh, serves up increasingly extreme material um, as you as you begin as you begin a, as you sort of you begin on a search for something legal content, Facebook will 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 serve increasingly extreme material, and you may end up with illegal content. And I think there's a number of reasons. We're going to do, but public opinion see, is hardening around a greater role for government. And that, you know, that, that the internet should not be the wild west, not just critics of big tech. Uh, and indeed, Facebook said it welcomed a more active role for government describing online harms as a complex issue that they could not tackle alone. And I do think there's an extent to which this has been left to sort of Facebook and the TikTok and others to uh, set out their rules whilst there isn't a clear framework established by government and parliament. Uh, and in the past, free speech activists have sought to ensure that people were free to express their views without fear of repression. And um, you see, we, you know, it's, very, it's, it's very notable that the online safety bill speaks, the only right that actually mentions is the right to freedom of expression. The, you know, the internet gives everyone a voice and principle, but the resulting noise means that few are heard above the clamor. And you know, particularly important for democracy, minority voices can be lost in their entirety. And forms of expression, which in the past were tolerable, may now need to be regulated because of the amplification and industrial, automation industrialization impact. So as independent fact-checking organization falls regularly observed that we mustn't conflate misinformation with ordinary people getting things wrong on the internet. You know, that's why I talk about the amplification and the industrialization. But I think the bigger question is whether platforms should be allowed or incentivized, as they effectively are, to promote such content or whether the law should encourage and require them to take such steps to reduce reality and reach. And so today's online safety uh, bill is of government stepping up to find a way to reclaim the internet from the peddlers of disinformation and lies. Um, and it has a duty of care on companies, which is going to be enforced by an independent regulator. I welcome that. I welcome that it's aims to require companies to prevent the spread of illegal content and activity online. And I am pleased that government is finally at least trying to hold the large tech platforms to, to account for what they say and what they're doing to tackle activity and content that is harmful to adults using their services but it's clear you know it doesn't go far enough you know it, they, they've watered down some of the legislative proposals to hold the like to hold back on criminal sanctions which will continue to put children and others at risk and um the penalty it's too narrow in its scope and the penalties it introduce it introduces the labor supports the introduction of criminal penalties for social media companies that's that, for example, fail to act to stamp out dangerous anti-vaccine content. And you know, we've got months before this bill is even in line-by-line uh, -line scrutiny, and we will be working with others across both houses to try and improve it. Um, 
And when it comes, as, as Jeremy said, it, it comes under disinformation, it's a requirement for Ofcom to set up a committee on disinformation. Um, I, I was head of technology, Ofcom, I have great respect for it. I've you know, got a number of committees, consumer committee, for, exam, for example, but, but you know, we know that there is disinformation there and we know that the impact, and you know, that until you know, we've got, the government has got this counter disinformation unit, when I've asked questions about it, it's came clear that it's, uh, it only it has zero full-time members. It's sort of like a, it, it, it gets people seconded or in, put into it as the need arises. And the need is there all the time. So I think that to state the government are taking the threat of online disinformation seriously within politics and also more, more generally, it self-qualifies uh, as, uh, as fake news. And it's also, uh, particularly uh, disheartening when we see the speed with which they leap to impose voter ID when we had one case of voter fraud out of 49 million in the last votes in the last election and for also uh, sanctions against the universities and, uh, and the student bodies for not in their view upholding free speech. So we have disproportionate responses in some cases and, and a lack of response in another. And I think so, you know, my main point is that we need a common understanding of the principles on which platforms and digital technology, you know, by which they should abide and which can, that should form the basis for a robust regulatory framework to prevent, to protect our lives online in the same way that there's protection against harms exist offline. And um, in terms of, in, you know, particularly for dis, you know, much of much of this information, and this is particularly true, I think we saw, um, political disinformation finds its way into our timelines and devices through social media platforms use of personal data and then we, you know the privacy concerns about, about the extent to which online platforms monitor control and profit from personal data have been raised repeatedly uh, without any you know, any action and we see and I think we you know I think the the, the attempted like coup in the in the US uh, beginning of January um, shows uh, that, that the promotion of fake news stories and misinformation to those most vulnerable to those me to those messages, driven by sort of advertising uh, uh, eyeball time um, and and algorithms, um, is 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 a threat to our to our democracy, and I do not believe it is a threat that this uh, bill um, addresses. And we've had my background in tech. Yeah, these these challenges were not. Um, you know, it didn't. They were predicted. You know, I know that because I was you know, one of the ones that were predicting them. The, the, the issues that have been that have been known to be on the rise for the last ten years, and yet we've had successive conservative governments who have allowed sort of the internet to. You know, so we wanted the internet to remain the wild west. Um, and it's had a significant impact. And speaking as an engineer myself, you know, I want people to have trust in the political system, and I want people to have trust in the technology which in, which, the, the, which which drives the the so many engage, uh, engagements at this mo moment. But we understand from Derby University that trust of new sources across the board fell by uh, fell, um, and just over a third of people in the UK trust new sources most of the time at a time when necessary to convey, for example, public health messaging more important than ever. So, um, you know, it's it's not that the, the online arms bill does not address it. What we want to see 
is to you know is to start from the fundamental questions. Uh, are these you know are the form what are the forms of activism which were low from the past but should now be um, addressed because of the new, unique harm that they cause online? How do we strike the right balance between freedom and and freedom from harm? Where what is a what how, how can we bring together a public consensus on some of these issues? And if, for example, and in the there's been a number of calls, for example, from footballers recently anonymity to be to be banned it can be but it can be a shield for for brave whistleblowers or for victims finding online refuge or for children and minorities finding courage for self-expression um so um banning that i think is unlikely to be is likely to be desirable but at the same time though it's a, it's a spectrum anonymity is a, it's a spectrum and why should you be forced to engage with those who are not prepared to uh be uh to, to reveal themselves to you. And those are the kinds of protections that we could put we could put in place. So, I mean, to, you know, I do think that the state needs to be cautious about criminalization, the publication of misinformation per se, but I'd also think we need to place legal responsibilities on platforms to prevent the application of such misinformation when it is injurious, for example, to public health or the democratic uh, process. Questions around online safety and um, mis the, 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 the trade-offs and misinformation aren't ones that should be answered by politicians or lawmakers alone. It's fundamental that citizen voice is involved in this debate and discussion. And we haven't seen that, we haven't seen that so far. Labour wants Britain to be the best place to grow up in, to work in, and to raise children and grow older. We want empowered citizens who don't maybe just have access to the internet but who are, are, are not being fed you like political content, but who are equipped with the skills, the literacy and the tools to be um, active uh, contributors uh, in, 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 the, in, the, in the debate and the, and the discussion. And so we support robust regulatory framework. We have to be sensitive to the trade-offs, but inaction is to make the worst trade-off of them all. Thank you. Well, thank you very much, Chi. That was uh, uh, absolutely fantastic. Uh, you you were forthright. You were clear. You were you you set out, uh, I think, an agenda uh, very different from that which um, on which the ink is barely dry from the government's point of view. So um, we look forward to you very much leading in the debate uh, uh, that's no doubt going to be coming uh, on this um, safety bill. Um, uh, uh, as you will know, of course, there have been um, suggestions from the House of Lords, for example, that the Electoral Commission and the Advertising Standards Authority should themselves get together to try to address issues of disinformation. Um, uh, although, of course, I might mention a, a problem that uh, does um, perhaps uh, there's some risk of it coming from the United States and infecting us here, which is that, of course, the more power you give to bodies like Ofcom, the Advertising Standards Authority, the Election Commission, the more important, quote unquote, it becomes for um, the government to make sure that its own people are on those bodies um, and they become politicised. Um, so there is a bit of a risk there. Um, but um, uh, before we think about that, or indeed uh, whether we bother thinking about it at all, could I now ask you, uh, Mary? <laughs> Uh, uh, LSE's leading expert on uh, big tech um, to uh, speak to us. Andrew. 
Thank you very much, Jeremy. And and to, to follow um, Chi's very clear discussion of, of what we need in a regulatory framework, um, a few things I want to say before I, I start. The, the first is anyone who's, who's tuning in hoping for a hot take in the online safety bill, you're, you're not going to get one. It, as Chi showed you, it came out at about midday today, and it's big. And I'm not going to give a hot take. I'll give a cold and thought out take once I've read it and the impact assessment properly. I know Twitter is abuzz with it at the moment. I have switched Twitter off for the moment. Um, so what I'm going to talk about um, is, is not strictly a, a legal framework, as Jeremy talked about, and, and hopefully not something um, of the more political bent that she's introduced. I'm going to talk about the kind of framing of, of what we might need to do around fake news and mis and, is, mis and disinformation um, and how we might think of a framework that would allow us a way out of the current impasse we're in. Um, so I, I'm going to start by starting something slightly historical. Um, in his book, The Lies of the Land, Adam McQueen reminds us that in 1953, Winston Churchill suffered a stroke while he was meeting his Italian counterpart. The only two members of cabinet who were informed of the Prime Minister's condition were Chancellor Rab Butler and Lord Salisbury. Even the Deputy Prime Minister, Anthony Eden, was kept in the dark. A press release was arranged. The media were informed that Churchill was overworked and needed rest no more. Churchill's private secretary met the press barons to ensure there would be no difficult questions or problematic coverage of the PM's health. This is one tale of political fake news from the annals of UK history. And there are many more, including the Profumo Affair in 1963, the Iraq dossier of 2003, or John Gummer's infamous photo opportunity of 1990, where he presented his four-year-old daughter eating a hamburger at the height of the BSE scare to the press. Now, the reason for this introduction is to highlight that mis- and disinformation is endemic in politics, as in almost all walks of life. As Chi said, 50% of people think they encounter it daily online. I think that means 50% of people either don't recognize it or are incorrect. In some areas, objectivity and the idea of objective truth are valued. For example, in scientific discoveries, they must be independently authenticated by replication of results. Politics, however, is not one of these areas. Politics is diverse, discursive, and inherently subjective. For those closest to Winston Churchill in 1953, they thought it was essential for the good of the nation that people did not know the rather grave medical condition of the prime minister. Others would subjectively have disagreed. Similarly, John Gummer would say his intervention was vital to protect the UK farming and meat processing industries. Others would say he was playing politics with people's lives. Gummer may point to the fact that in the end, only 177 Britons that we know of died of VCJD, while countless thousands of livelihoods were at risk. He might argue that had he not done so, the loss of livelihoods may have led to a greater loss of life than VCJD did. Others would subjectively disagree. How, they might say, could he have known this in 1990? Similar debates might be heard today between those in favour of a cautious approach to unlocking the nation and those we might call lockdown sceptics. So what makes today's fake news challenge different? Well, 
In one way, it's no different. It's just a matter of labeling. Prior to the 1990s, there really wasn't a label for political misinformation, unless it was criminal, as Jeremy pointed out at the start. It was part of the political cut and thrust debate and counter debate, and was usually found in parliamentary debates, hustings, manifestos, and in the leader columns of the newspapers. In the 1990s, things started to change. I wrote about this in 2004. I know I don't look old enough to have been writing books in 2004, but I, I am actually. Um, when I edited Human Rights in the Digital Age, the term spin had emerged and the arrival of spin doctors like Alistair Campbell, who apparently erroneously announced the death of the Queen this morning in um, Good Morning Britain. Uh, he had to quickly correct that. Um, where had spin come from? Well, I and others diagnosed that it emerged from the rolling news cycle first seen in the 1980s. Political actors were called upon to respond instantly to global and local events. The space and time for policy formulation was closed. SPIN was the response to this. As I noted then, increased information gathering and the instant always-on transmission of information changed the relationship between states and individuals. This new relationship sits very uneasily. Governments who in democracies must appeal to popular opinion are, in their dealings with the electorate, less concerned with policy or substance and instead are focusing on image and presentation. Fake news, I believe, is the current evolution of spin. Between 2000 and 2020, digital technology developed at breakneck speed. In 2000, your media diet still predominantly came from mainstream news outlets. There were a few early citizen journalists, such as Ariane Huffington and Matt Drudge, who broke the mould, but it was not until the camera, smartphone and modern social media platforms emerged in the late 2000s that the landscape changed. Today, anyone can, in theory, directly reach out to anyone else. The days of editorial control and fact-checking a story are gone. Conspiracy theories, previously kept to the margins, can be presented to the world completely unfiltered. This is due to two commonly recorded and discussed phenomena, filter bubbles and echo chambers. Filter bubbles are the state of intellectual isolation that result from personalized data streams presented to us by algorithms that selectively guess what information we want to see based on past behavior. Thus, Facebook selects and presents information to you based upon your activity both on the site and off the site. If this activity suggests you're receptive to conservative political messages, it will promote these in your feed over more socialist messages. They want to keep you on the site. Your eyes are money to them. They don't want you going somewhere else. So Twitter operates in the same way. Although it's slightly more transparent, it allows you to create your own bubble by choosing who you want to follow. But as Twitter users tend to flock, your bias is also reflected in your Twitter stream. Echo chambers are the result of filter bubbles. An echo chamber is a media platform that allows beliefs to be amplified or reinforced by communication and repetition inside a closed system and insulated from rebuttal. By participating in an echo chamber, users can seek out information that reinforces their existing views without encountering challenging opposing views. Well, digital media has launched a new generation of political communication strategies and strategies. Now, politicians seek to directly address the public through social media, and this has become the norm. 
The first truly successful example of this was David Axelrod's adoption of social media platforms in 2008 during the Obama campaign. Soon though, politicians around the world adopted this model, including David Cameron's now infamous YouTube channel. This had the dual advantage of presenting the candidate to the public in whatever way the campaign preferred, and also it meant you didn't incur a heavy level of spend on campaign finances. So it was cheap. It wasn't like paying for adverts in newspapers or in television. And also you've got to think about the spending limits that apply in UK elections. Two things, though, were about to change the political landscape. Firstly, the campaign director of Vote Leave, Dominic Cummings, engaged in a campaign of applied political rhetoric over policy. During the EU referendum, he knowingly promoted campaign slogans and targeted advertisements focusing on NHS funding and immigration. In his campaign, accuracy or truth did not matter. I'm not suggesting he lied. There's a debate whether he did or didn't. I just think he didn't care. Only rhetoric mattered. He refocused a referendum on the UK's membership of a political and trade association onto domestic NHS funding and immigration policy, neither of which were tied to our EU membership. Ultimately, this led to success for the Vote Leave campaign in the referendum. What happened next? No one, or perhaps everyone, could have predicted. Truth in politics, the essential objective core of subjective political debate, became a casualty of pure political rhetoric in the form of Trump 2016 and later Trump 2020. Fueled by support from mainstream Republican media such as Fox News and fringe outlets such as Rush Limbaugh and Breitbart, Donald Trump employed fake news as a shield against critical engagement. The term fake news became a mainstream term for any position in opposition to his own. How could he do this? Well, because of two effects of the platformization of political content. The first is the confirmation bias afforded by echo chambers. When Donald Trump addressed the electorate, the lack of an intermediating filter meant his message bifurcated. Those who wanted to believe his remarkably effective, simple and clear rhetoric had their views confirmed by the messages they saw from like-minded people. And they were not challenged by those opposing who they simply did not see. Twitter and Facebook split almost exactly in two. You were either pro-Trump or anti-Trump. Nobody was in the middle. There was no meh about Donald Trump. Echo chambers magnified an already polarised electorate. The second is what I would call relativism of truth or objectivity. And partly this is caused by echo chambers and filter bubbles, but I think it has a wider cause. It's sometimes said we live in a post-truth world. Now, this can be tied, I think, to a greater focus on the subjective individual over the community. What I believe is more important than truth or objectivity. The loss of communal values and shared experiences caused by us being separated through these digital devices um, and, and leading to increased personalization of information resources, media and entertainment leads us to believe that the individual's lived experience is more important than communal shared values. And this leads to the development of what you might call a protective culture of personal experience. Concepts such as microaggressions and triggers, a movement that critical voices tend to label as wokeness. They tend to call it this to make it something that they can attack. But there's a lot going on here in the background. It's not just about kids in Eastern Europe making money out of setting up fake news farms around Donald Trump. 
And I think the timing of today's event is perfect because it meant I didn't have to read the bill. I could think about something else. Yesterday, the government in the Queen's speech set out its legislative agenda for the coming parliamentary session. You've heard a bit about this already from Chi. Here we find many proposed solutions to the problems of political myths and disinformation, all of which I think will not succeed or will only succeed in part. There is the Higher Education Freedom of Speech Bill, a possibly worse named bill you couldn't imagine. The bill will bring in new measures that will require universities and colleges to defend free speech and help stamp out unlawful silencing, whatever that is. A new director for freedom of speech and academic freedom will sit on the board of the Office for Students. They will have responsibility to investigate breaches of the new freedom of speech duties, and there will be a new complaint scheme. I think this is plainly wrong-headed. You cannot compel speech. Everyone has the right to speak, yes, but private and even public institutions should not be legally compelled to host speech they disagree with. The impact of this is likely to be increased political bifurcation, not less. Secondly, we have, as we've heard, the long-heralded online safety bill, which will introduce a duty of care on social media companies, so that in the words of the government, what is unacceptable offline will also be unacceptable online. As an academic who's worked and researched in this field for 25 years, I'm going to give you an exclusive here. This has been the case for the last 25 years. What is unacceptable offline is also unacceptable online. The problem is enforcement, not law or not standards. It's the difficulty of enforcement. What we need is more money for investigation and enforcement, not new offences or new regulatory structures. The online safety bill does not cover journalism and the democratic political debate. And news media sites are excluded from its scope. Now, this is partly the result of extensive lobbying by mainstream media. The target is the social media platforms, the wild west of the internet as the government likes to portray them. Yet hugely bifurcating and misleading mainstream sites like the Daily Mail Online, which Media Fact Check gave their second lowest rating of low for accuracy due to numerous failed fact checks and poor information sourcing, escape this regulation. The bill will not effectively regulate mis- and disinformation. Instead, I think it will incentivize platforms such as Twitter and Facebook to invest substantially into additional moderation for low-hanging fruit. Hate speech, violent and obscene speech. Not that there's anything wrong with that. I think that's great. Speech that objectively is already illegal. My concern is that the platforms may, through the bill, become bound to solve impossible disputes around objective values of clearly subjective discourse. The likelihood is that asking platforms to play referee will increase bifurcation and entrenched relativism. When platforms reach a decision I agree with, I will promote it and I will like it. When they reach a decision I disagree with, I will distrust or even challenge their integrity. The solution, as Cass Sunstein wrote in 2001 in Republic.com, is to attempt to break the silos. Now, this is no easy task, but... <clears throat> Okay, being brave. I have a three-point plan, which I hope might start to work. First, we must re-establish the significance of truth or objectivity. Speech in, the form, sorry, speech in the form of opinion is inherently subjective. What I say and how you receive it is informed by our values and our experiences. Truth or information to be valuable cannot be. Historically relied upon media accuracy when we received information as opposed to opinion. 
The old Press Complaints Council had an editor's code, and the first paragraph stated, Newspapers and periodicals must take care not to publish inaccurate, misleading or distorted material, including pictures. A modern version of this is in the IPSO code. One reason news media sites are exempted from the online safety bill is that theoretically they are regulated by IPSO or IMPRESS, but it's an open secret that they are toothless. What is needed is a truly co-regulatory model with industry-generated codes of practice for news media sites, social media platforms and other digital intermediary services, and an independent contract content regulator with effective investigatory enforcement powers. Such an authority must be empowered to oblige any online intermediary within scope to quickly remedy informational inaccuracies by removing and preventing the republication of established inaccurate content, requiring the publication of corrections and the placement of prominent notices when the accuracy of a statement or claim has been called into question. We should not allow the continuation of the claim that truth and facts are relative. Second, given the reactive nature of regulatory interventions and the speed with which inaccurate information can be circulated and promoted, we need a rapid rebuttal system. This comes in two parts. One, fact-checking for established news and informational resources such as journalism and political bloggers. And secondly, rebuttals for individual users. The first requires us to award public funding for fact-checking services such as Full Fact or PolitiFact and to promote them on platforms to raise public awareness of them. A news story which any user felt was inaccurate could be referred to a relevant fact-checking service by a report button. The outcome of the fact-check would then be appended to the original story. This encourages virtuous behaviour and an accurate news service would get positive reports appended whereas inaccuracy would be laid bare. For individuals, a simpler system would allow users to append or link to information which rebuts the claim of the original post or story. For example, if I disagreed with a user who posted on Twitter that the UK has the world's most successful vaccine programme, I could submit a link to a WHO report which rebuts this. I'm not saying that's not true, by the way, I'm just, it's an example. As with any other form of content moderation, Twitter would then be required to moderate whether my rebuttal establishes prima facie inaccuracy in the original post. If so, if they believed so, my link would be appended to the original post. Notice the original would not be removed. This is not in any way suppressing speech. It is possible that a right of appeal to a body like the Facebook Oversight Board could be created for user-to-user -user decisions. Finally, and perhaps most simply and effectively, we need to step back from regulation and move towards education. We do not allow people to do things that are possibly harmful without first training them. Today, there is much discussion of online harms and the duty of care with the publication of the Online Safety Bill. The idea of a duty of care is right, but for me, wrongly applied. By making online platforms responsible for speech acts as if they were tripping hazards, we confuse absolute harms with relative harms. The better analogy is health and safety at work. We don't allow people to work with electrics, heavy machinery, gas or chemicals without proper training. This is because mistakes can be harmful to them and to others. The same is true of magnifying and distributing political misinformation. Part of our solution must be a driving license for the internet. Not quite that strict but a programme of digital literacy, education on how to spot frauds, misinformation and other harms, and explaining the harm of recirculating them. So having started with Winston Churchill, I'm ending with Nelson Mandela. Education is the most powerful weapon which you can use to change the world. Thank you.
I'll leave it there and I see Kate has arrived now. Thank you very much, Andrew. That was admirably um, uh, clear and there's just so much content. I, I, I wasn't able to keep up. It's <laughs> fantastic. Uh, it really was. Um, uh, it, one of the ironies, of course, about um, the people's preference for emotive narrative uh, uh, in politics as opposed to quote-unquote boring truths. One of the ironies about that is that, of course, it has increased, at least to some degree, political engagement, um, even though you might not like the kind of engagement that has been promoted. Um, one of the things about micro-targeting uh, is that, of course, it enables politicians to get the people who might not otherwise be interested in politics. Um, so I think that there's a kind of tension or irony here because um, surveys consistently show that a majority of people think politicians don't care about the issues I think about, uh, I think are important. But the irony is actually micro-targeting enables politicians to do just that. Um, so, um, I mean, that, um, that, uh, that, as it were, under, under, underlines the importance of the educative um, role as opposed to the reg regulative one that you, you, you suggest, which I wholeheartedly agree with. But um, that's enough from me, as they say. So I am delighted to um, welcome now Clayton. Kate Plonick, um, who, as I said at the outset, uh, is a professor at St. John's University Law School and uh, a leading US commentator um, on big tech um, ethics, freedom of speech. Um, so without further ado, I'd like to welcome her, um, ask her to unmute and um, speak, speak to us. So uh, welcome, Kate. Thank you so much for having me. I apologize for being late. I had a terrible snafu between Israel time zone and uh, London time zone while sitting in Brooklyn, New York. And so uh, ended up mixing things up and directly scheduling things on top of each other. So I appreciate you um, accommodating me coming a little bit late. Andrew, I'm only sorry that I didn't get to see more of your, only the very tail end of your, your, your speech, I, but I liked what I heard. Um, and I think it's going to dovetail nicely with the remarks that I prepared for today, which are kind of around the, the challenging, the very premise of what we consider to be political, what we consider to be fake news and what we consider to be um, beneficiary, like beneficial to kind of the marketplace of ideas, so to speak. Um, so one of the things that I have recently kind of noticed, at least in the US, uh, is that we have set up all of these issues around uh, we have set up all of these kinds of um, structures internal to these to companies. So Facebook has a group of people from all different types of media publications across the spectrum that is supposed to fact check their, this fact check board that they created. Um, and it fails to really do so at any way in scale and in any way that people find are happy with or consistent. The other thing that I think is has been interesting in watching everything around the fake news is the amount in which it turns out that fake news is not perpetrated in some type of link or some type of uh, some type of meme or something else, but is instead perpetrated by an individual that goes on some type of mainstream news channel, usually some type of cable news channel, speaks about things that are in fact fake and voices it almost as opinion. But then in fact, it gets of course, clipped and linked, and that piece of things goes viral. So I kind of want to talk about that, that section of things, because there's some recent research that shows 
that actually a lot of the um, ability for people like in the US, Lauren Bobart or, um, or um, Marjorie Taylor Greene, who are kind of um, these extremist uh, Second Amendment um, loving, very extreme, like even for like the Republican Party to the right um, of that, uh, uh, leaders is that they are being first given a platform on places like Fox News. It is not that they are, their their speech and their fake news speech about stealing the election or something else is going viral uh, in and of itself because of Facebook, right? It is not like Marjorie Taylor Greene is recording videos on Facebook and that those are going viral. What is going viral is her having a platform on CNN or on, on Fox and that gets a clip and then that gets passed around. So what I want to actually kind of say is a little bit the everything old is new again. There is a gatekeeping function that the media is play, failing to, to play here by giving kind of these individuals a, a platform for their speech and a, 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 a valence of legitimacy for their speech in the first place. There is no doubt that after that fact, that of course, um, that of course things like Facebook and Twitter are like, are not augmenting the problem with the frictionless nature of their, of their sharing. But it is that the problem is being, is like the nut of the problem is not necessarily Facebook. It is in fact, something that we already have, we have seen so many times before, and it is the press not fulfilling its role as gatekeeper. So here's another example of that, that happened recently before the, before the um, election in the US, which I don't know how, how much press this got in, in, in Europe um, and the UK, which was, um, there was a New York, uh, New York Post story that was a front page story about Hunter Biden and his laptop being taken and they found evidence supposedly of like his ties to Ukraine on this laptop. And it was a very spurious article. OK, but the New York Post is OK. It's a little bit of a rag, but it's not exact. It's not a total rag. Like it's not, you know, it's not the national part. It's not like that boy on the cover of like the New York Post. OK, like this is a, like a fairly serious, like, you know, occasionally has something like interesting to say. Um, publication is maybe the second most widely read publication in in um, in New York City, and and it was you know and what came out of that that incident was basically there was a call on Twitter and Facebook to ban links to the New York Post article because the New York Post article was supposedly fake news. This is this is crazy. That is like a crazy crazy thing to ask social media to do. Um, of, of, you know, of a journalistic organization. That's just not the role that it's built to play, nor should it be. And nor should there be like, and I mean, actually, in his testimony in Congress, Jack Dorsey, in fact, walked back this decision and said that it was a vast mistake for the company to have taken down the links to the New York Post article. What should have happened in this type of thing, what would happen in a healthy media ecosystem is that you would have responses to this. You would have other places having news stories that were correct. You would force a retraction. You would have some type, which in fact did partially happen with the New York Post story, but it got lost in the fact that you've now created a sub story about the fact that it, like you were censoring journalis journalism. And so there's just this unholy mess 
of people trying to kind of pass the buck and people trying to force others to take responsibility. And there's just not enough, I think to, to Andrew's point precisely, there's not enough education about how this all worked to begin with, how it like the, the, the various, um, the various kind of um, structures that have been challenged by the introduction of these media companies to the internet and how they have um, changed uh, the very foundation of the way that we talk about media and the way that we talk about who is in control of media. Um, so it is not that I think that there shouldn't be more reckoning um, towards the social media companies to take things down, um, especially in terms of election and public health. But I do think that these are going that these are decisions that are very, very difficult to 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 determine. And we have hid behind in the law, in ethics, in philosophy, in every area for years, like very lazy definitions and not like interrogated what we actually mean by them or tried to make them better. And I will give, so what I mean by that is like precisely is the, the idea of political, like everything is political. Like everything is not political. There is like, there is no meaning to, frankly, to de defining something as political, just as like newsworthiness is a circularly defined term that really doesn't get us anywhere. What we mean by newsworthiness is it matters to me. It matters to my intellectual processes. And this is not something that is going to fly in a global world of transnational speech. So the uh, the thing that I was going, oh, what was I gonna say? Oh, the thing that I was going to say was basically that the um, the interest, I'll give you an example of, of this, for example, um, the oversight board, one of their first decisions, the Facebook oversight board, and one of its first decisions was dealing with a problem of, of um, the discussion of the availability of hydroxychloroquine and another drug, I forget the name of it, um, in France, and there was a discussion of whether or not it was actually a treatment for COVID. And the speech had been taken down. Uh, it was a back and forth between political leaders in France on a Facebook group that was large and public. And the speech was taken down by Facebook because it was deemed to basically be a, uh, an, a fake news, an endorsement of fake news and a public health risk. And the oversight board restored the speech citing the scientific method and that basically without the discussion of wrong ideas, you cannot get to right ideas and that you have to have certain types of, you, you have to have certain types of speech up in order to like have a discussion. And that basically, in fact, the discussion, when you looked at it very closely was not about whether or not this treatment worked. It was whether or not there should be a policy decision banning such treatment. And so because it was a discussion of policy and not a discussion of the underlying validity of the science and whether or not it was true, it worked or not, they thought that this was speech that deserved to be kept up. I, if you're following along at home, that is like a crazy level of detail and sophistication to bring to a, to a decision that is happening about a million times a day. Um, all over the internet in 48 different languages at least. And I think that there needs, like the idea that you're going to have a group go in and determine on each of these instances, oh no, this is more in the pursuit of science. This is more in pursuit 
of, of a political discussion is just a completely, it is going to be a waste of time and something that will never end up perfectly working out. There has to be a, a responsibility on some of these things to end with the end user because there is just simply, there is just no amount of paternalism that is going to get you to a free society that, that does not have, that does not have some people taking responsibility for some of this on their own. Which brings me to my final point. And actually, uh, Jeremy, to your introductory remarks, which is the idea that there is a, the idea that there is that the availability of these mechanisms and the narrative structure that we create around all of these things of the take it up, keep it down narrative of the, of the fake news narrative of kind of all of these political valences that we kind of spin and that the media takes advantage of has led to more people being involved in politics, maybe for the worst. Uh, there is certainly a Madisonian. Well, I, from the US, I would call it a Madisonian kind of element to this, but the idea that you are, that it's an elitism. There is, there is a loss of, there is a loss of, uh, of control by a knowledgeable elite and gatekeepers. And there is a sudden empowerment of the majority, which it turns out we're all Democrats and small D Democrats until they get, there's too many of them and they're making stupid decisions and we have Bodie McBoat face. So like, I basically, I think that this is, this is, I, I joke, but I'm very, but I'm actually deadly serious. This is, this is a huge issue. The terms of democracy get bandied about and voting and all of these things get bandied about as solutions to the unaccountability of these platforms and forcing them to have things like like responses to fake news and responses to responses to to online harms. But we really have no true way of holding them accountable in a way that works. And we have acknowledged for for, for hundreds of years that a pure democracy is not the best one, but we have no way of splitting up um, kind of those types of functions um, in kind of a perfectly transparent society. And so I am looking forward to the rest of this conversation, but thank you so much for having me. And I'm really, I'm so glad that I got to be here. Sure. Thank you so much, Kate. That was also absolutely fascinating. We've been incredibly privileged uh, with our speakers and what they've had to say and the clarity of their analysis. Um, thank you, by the way, for introducing me to an entirely new piece of information, which is there are actually political opinions to the right of the Republican Party. Do you know, oh, hell yes. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> Unfortunately, yes. <laughs> it might interest you to know in relation to what you were saying just now that um, the government is uh, uh, proposing to put platforms under a duty to take account of the need to protect content that is, quote-unquote, of political importance, quote-unquote. Um, so it'll be interesting to see what comes into that box. Um, could I, I just say one thing, uh, actually, in favour of platforms and their policies, if I may, um, which it's been rather disappointing in terms of the definition of political and elections that the UK government hasn't picked up on yet. Um, and that is that platforms are absolutely crystal clear that misinformation and disinformation about the electoral process um, must come down. Uh, if you start saying that, you know, no one's can go out to vote because there's been a, you know, some kind of nuclear explosion or something, <laughs> uh, uh, and that's not true. Uh, I mean, that can't um, stay up. Uh, but uh, what they call hyper-partisan content, 
you know, however offensive, annoying, hurtful, and whatever, you know, that that's a different matter. Now, um, uh, th this has entirely escaped pretty much the UK debate, uh, that distinction, and I think that's a big shame. But, okay, um, now uh, it's now uh, question time for the panellists. Um, and um, can I just say, we have got lots of questions. Um, so I do apologise in advance to anyone whose question doesn't get read out. But you should have the satisfaction of knowing that your, your questions are visible to all the speakers. Uh, and I've already been thinking about them all, actually. So even though your question may not get read out, um, all the speakers have had a chance to think about it. Uh, and we have got some um, questions. Um, so um, uh, could, I, uh, uh, could I ask, uh, 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 I think perhaps might be willing to take this one. Um, there's a, a question from Ewan Grant, um, a former law enforcement intelligence analyst. Um, and um, he says that, uh, he asks, do you see a role for schools in supporting school children in combating mis and disinformation and extremism? Or are they overstretched and big tech really has to up its game, he says. Uh, but perhaps I could ask you about that one. Well, um, I think uh, yes and yes. You know, I think I think um, there is a there is a uh, I, I should, yeah. There's so many years there's been criticism of those who uh, do media studies um, as, a, as a degree course. I think we are seeing the value of media studies, and I think that it is something that everyone should be studying. And so, from a um, as part of literacy, we have digital literacy. They, we need to have, if you like, uh, information uh, literacy. And yes, uh, schools are overstretched, uh, but that you know, the, the, the answer to that is, is more investment in support in schools and support for our, for our teachers. Uh, because I, I think it's, it's clear that that, is, that has to be part of equipping young people in how to contribute the world in which uh, they live, and a lot of this is to design what the curriculum might be, and it's certainly, you know, uh, maybe it's, uh, you know, it, it certainly has to be uh, targeted in the right way, but uh, yeah. Thanks. Um, now, I've got a question here from Karen Ukar, I hope I pronounced that right, who's a student from Warwick. Um, and he has a question from Mr. Andrew, and I think that's you. Um, so, and he says, how useful or reliable are algorithms in countering dis and misinformation? Um, I thought I might. Uh, perhaps you could have a bite at that and Kate as well, maybe. <laughs> I, I was going to start by saying it's very, it's very kind of, of Karen to... Uh, direct that to me, but I suspect Kate is probably going to follow me by giving a much better answer. But no, no, I, I'll take it. But Kate will then follow with a much better answer. I mean, I, I think the problem is that the algorithms, um, they, they, they can't do nuance. Algorithms are very good at, at kind of AB, black and white. So you can, you can train algorithms to look for words and words in context. Um, so they're, they're not bad. It's, it's spotting perhaps terrorist speech or violent speech or something like that. Where they struggle is truth, because as I've already said, truth is very subjective. And it, it's hard enough to train a human to identify um, something which is, is true or untrue, this subjective value. So how we are going to train algorithms to do this at least in the next 10 to 15 years, I cannot see. In, in 
20, 30 years time, who knows as, as technology improves. But I think in the short to medium term, I'm afraid algorithms don't work for, for fake and falsehoods. They work for things like copied material, redistribution of material which has been previously taken down through fingerprints. They work roughly around things such as hate and terrorism, but even then there, there's mistakes. So um, natural language processing is not particularly good at telling whether I'm going to blow something up or whether I think this event is a really good event which is going to blow up. Um, and if it can't tell that, it's even worse at being able to tell truth from untruth. But I, I suspect Kate's probably going to say something more eloquent. Um, I don't know about that, but I will say that the, so algorithms, just generally speaking, moderation of speech in general through algorithms is terrible. Um, it's everything. I mean, we're talking about three different types of speech. First of all, you have video speech, which is like probably the highest fidelity and the most difficult to kind of moderate because it just takes a ton of time to like, an, to understand the audio and the visual components together. And it's very hard to train on um, for, from, from an ML, like a machine learning perspective. Um, then you have, then you, but you also have kind of the greatest risks there. And I specifically have written about how, um, how uh, Facebook dealt behind the scenes with the posting of the Christchurch um, mosque shooting uh, video that went up that was posted live as the as the killer decided to attack this mosque in Christchurch um, and how they took it down afterwards so there's also like a distinction there between live and uh, and static video uh, and then you have um, pictures uh, pictures are remarkably were remarkably crappy at like at doing um, photo recognition this is something that people seem to like think that there must be some type of amazing AI that they just don't know about but really pretty reliably almost all of the content moderation on on photo on pictures that are posted online or drawings that are posted online that we count as pictures are uh, are basically is all done by humans um, they're getting slightly better at recognizing nudity only slightly, still pretty like 85% of the like 35% of the time, they will like think that like uh, an AI will flag a picture of a beach as like a nude body um, or things like that. So this is, uh, this is pretty, this is not super great. Text is also terrible because text is of course contextual and in conversation with other text. Um, so even when you take in the conversation around other texts there are other factors like the identity of the speaker, the language of the speaker, the, di uh, the dialect of the speaker, the location of the speaker currently, the relationship between the speaker and the listener, like all of these things which are not easily quantifiable into, into um, vectors that can be used by an algorithm. So recently, um, because Facebook and Twitter uh, had in particular following January 6th and 7th and leading up to the election, started to do some just like pure natural language taking down phrases. They would just ban accounts and take down speech that had various words in it. So for example, I had my entire Twitter account suspended in the fall when I made a joke to someone, I quoted a friend telling me that she was going to kill me on Twitter. They flagged it, my account got suspended and it was taken down. That was like killing, I will kill you, was, was like verboten speech. This was also true for Facebook with stop the steal. If you use the phrase stop the steal, which was of course the phrase of the right to protest Trump's election. Um, if you use that phrase, they would just take down your entire account. Uh, it was not sophisticated. 
And it was not really quite an algorithm. It was more like a one-to-one -one matching. Um, and so this is really about, this is like really, it, that is a different thing entirely from an algorithm. So do I think that it's the future? Maybe, but we shouldn't hope for it to be because it's kind of terrible and it will be over-censoring and, and very, um, very, very bad for free speech. Thanks very much to both of you. That was, uh, that's fantastic. I've got a, a question here, uh, an interesting question actually from Mark Laser or Lisa, who's an assistant professor at Leiden Law School. Um, and if I could just summarize his question, um, basically what he's asking is that there appears to be a gap, uh, particularly here in the UK, but elsewhere also uh, in terms of content regulation. Um, and that is there's no regulation of political advertising. Um, now, uh, those of you who can remember back far enough will remember that the Advertising Standards Authority in this country used to have a, a, a remit to look at um, political advertising. Um, uh, but uh, when they intervened in a very prominent way, um, uh, after the Conservative Party depicted Tony Blair with demon-like eyes, um, uh, making him look somewhat devilish, um, uh, uh, they thought that had gone beyond the boundaries of good taste or something of that nature. Um, that actually led to them relinquishing their role in political advertising because they said, well, um, you know, this is this is a potato too hot for us to handle. Um, but I wonder whether um, uh, I, I know the House, uh, the House of Lords Select Committee uh, has has suggested we might go back down this path. But I wonder, Chi, could I ask you whether you think that or some version of that option is necessary, desirable, appropriate? So I think that um, I, I, I think we need platform broadcast broadcast content is regulated or advertising. We're losing you a little bit, actually. If you could um, just get right. closer to your mic, thanks. Right. I don't know what that is. Yeah, so I think so. I think there's a mismatch in a number of areas between how broadcast content, so advertising, say, on 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 um, on television, is regulated versus how um, content is regulated online. And those mismatches need to be, um, need to be yeah, rationalized. So I think there is absolutely a need for the regulation of online political uh, content. Uh, who that regulator should be, um, at, you know, whether it should be the Advertising Standards Authority uh, or the uh, Electoral Commission, effectively, um, I think needs more examination. Um, I am, for example, I think Kate said that, you know, I'm, and you said, I'm, I'm concerned about how much um, Ofcom has on its plate right now and in, in, in how many additional powers it, it's been given. So um, I think we need to have a review of the, like the, the sort of the regulatory landscape, but we certainly need to have a regulation of online, of, Advertising online. Okay, thank you. Uh, would either Kate or Andrew like to um, have something on, uh, or say something on the regulators uh, uh, stepping into the minefield of political advertising, or do you want to move on? I don't mind. Mark can email me later, um, and I'll answer his question. He's <laughs> <laughs> oh, like a PhD student. <laughs> That's very diplomatic. Um, okay, um, well, just uh, uh, a, a question, an interesting question, for actually from um, uh, Horatio Mortimer. Um, he, he doesn't say where, where he's from, but 
he uh, he says we used to be force fed high quality news through the limited choice of TV. Now the audience has so much choice and we're getting generally we're looking generally for entertainment. How is the boring truth, he says, ever going to rise high enough to win our attention? Um, <laughs> now, Kate, you smiled widest when that one came up. So perhaps I could ask you to say something about that. <laughs> no, I love this question. I've been I've been really like kind of trying to get back to first principles on a lot of this stuff and challenge this the fundamental notion of like we didn't chat with. We didn't really know, I guess, I think um, in the US anyways, what we were getting when we had five like 24 hour news networks. And so it was just this constant cacophony of content that like is, is being churned and churned and they have to make a story and they have to get it out there and they encourage hot takes and they don't delve in deep because people are catching it for five minutes between like walking into their hairdresser and it's on or like going to this, like, you know, going, walking like past, you know, in their living room and it's on. Um, so I think that that's exactly, I think that that's exactly right. And I think that there has to be, um, I think that honestly, it wouldn't like be terrible if there, I don't know how it's going to happen or whether it will happen through the market or otherwise, I don't know how it would happen if not the market, but basically an idea of kind of like, there's a slowing down of, or a constriction on, on the, on the viability of all of these networks and all of this kind of uh, and all of this kind of stuff. That said, I also think that things like it's under it's we talk so much about transparency, but things like C-SPAN, which is kind of the which is the you know the 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 the, the nonprofit pub, public enterprise that uh, does a full broadcast of like the house floor and everything. There's been some fascinating studies that have been recently done about the number of times people uh, 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 um, representatives or senators make statements on the floor when C-SPAN is on um, and how they use rights-based language in order to basically create this, to, to basically take a clip of that and use it to speak to their constituency, to make it basically to use C-SPAN as like a political tool and it has changed entirely the nature of the debate on the floor in the first place. It has made it much more narrative-based. It's made it much more polemic. It's made it much more rights-based um, and much less kind of, and much less, uh, I mean, and that's, it's a strange thing to come at C-SPAN because people think C-SPAN is like boring and doesn't really like, you know, is giving us like the primary source news, but it's interesting just to, to from a sociological perspective to think about what happens when you turn a camera on, how it changes the entire valence of the conversation. Um, and so I think that this is, I think this is a, this is the key question in a lot of ways. Great, thank you. Um, I wonder if I could ask or just a, ver a version of a question here from Jason Shepard. Um, and he says, uh, are there any clear steps we can take to address false information and misrepresented information by public figures as part of the political process? Um, and I wondered, Key, if I could ask you, I mean, there, there are periodically um, attempts to create codes of conduct specifically for politicians engaged in um, uh, uh, election campaigns and so on. But uh, do you see much uh, mileage in that? I mean, is, is there, an, is there uh, uh, the possibility that politicians could get on the front foot and have some kind of self-denying ordinances about the, the way that they conduct their politics? I mean, is there any mileage in that or is that... Um, uh, or is that um, uh, 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 a fake hope, if you like? 
Well, I mean, we're always, uh, there are always calls for a kinder, um, what was it, a, a kinder, nicer politics, which are, which, um, which don't, don't have come to nothing effectively. I mean, there are, but having said that, I mean, there are, there are a number of, you know, there are codes which um, regulate, if you like, or our conduct as honourable uh, members. And there are, as, as you've already said, uh, requirements in terms of um, you know, what we say, what we're allowed to say, some of the things we're allowed to say during an election. So, um, I, you know, I, I, I certainly, and, and in addition, you know, there's, um, there are numbers of organisations which highlight misinformation from uh, members of parliament and the misinformation from prime ministers. Um, and that's quite it. So, so I think it, I, I think it's, it's something that's um, you know, I, I I don't think that um, I think it's something that, that's that's certainly worth looking at. But I I don't think politicians are the prime or generally the prime source of misinformation um, in the UK. Uh, uh, at least, um, um, Mr. Johnson. Okay, thank you. Uh, it's just a, a very short one, but I, I wonder uh, if Andrew, you might um, reflect on this. Uh, Mudit Jain uh, says all these social media platforms are a means of self-promotion. Um, I mean, that's maybe something we haven't quite considered yet. I mean, in, in, uh, I mean, obviously, social media platforms are there to commercialise their content. Um, just as newspapers uh, uh, want need to some extent to commercialise their content. Um, uh, I, I mean, is there um, an inherent tension, or, or and if there is, how should it be resolved? I guess uh, between commercialisation demands on the one hand and what you might call public responsibilities on the other. I mean, I think this is a really interesting question. I mean, I, I should probably start by saying, obviously, I come from a legal background, not the, the, the sort of media studies background that, that that kind of addresses as well. But I mean, clearly, the, the social media platforms are private spheres. Um, if you look at the major social media platforms, Facebook, Twitter, you know, Reddit, et cetera, et cetera, TikTok, these are private spheres. They're, so they're all around commercializing us. Uh, and there is this phrase, you know, surveillance capitalism that you hear. The value of us to them is to be on their site and using their service and giving them information. Um, there, there is uh, an explanation that, that I think is quite convincing that they see us as kind of silkworms, that, that individually we create strands or threads of data. And when that is woven together, something emerges. That, that's an idea of a chap called Chris Marsden, who, who works at Sussex University. Um, because of that, it becomes a kind of um, almost Faustian pact between the platforms and the users. You know, some people just want to go there and, and lurk and, and, and sort of, or keep in touch with friends and family. But certainly today, a lot of people use them for commercial purposes. And the idea of the social media influencer is a job. I mean, maybe it, it reveals my age, but I get really downheartened when I see these surveys where they ask school children, what do you want to be when you grow up? And they say, I want to be a social media influencer. But I, I suppose, you know, that, that just shows how times change. I, I probably said I wanted to be a pop star or something I don't think I did but anyway um, so there is this this nature and, and of course good self-promotion is the kind of thing which gets lots of people to come to you so something which is controversial 
is more likely to attract people and engage with people. So we see it all the time from people who want to court controversy to try and create a kind of personality issue or a personality around them. So I think the, there is this problem here. And that's why, I mean, there is a lot of questions. I, I just, you know, I'll say this and then pass back. There's a lot of people in the chat are kind of saying things like, oh, how do we ensure that, you know, we, we allow free speech while restricting this kind of harmful stuff? Well, to me, as now this is me back in lawyer mode a little bit, the distinction is between opinion and claimed facts. So we find this in defamation law. Judges and lawyers don't have a problem in defamation law. If I kind of say, it is my opinion that person X is untrustworthy, then depending exactly how I phrase that, I'm probably on the right side of defamation law. If I say person X is untrustworthy, that is, I make a statement of fact and it's not true, then I'm on the wrong side of defamation law. So I think this is where we need to start to draw our lines around mis and disinformation. Where people make factual statements, they should be checked and challenged and, and, and processed and, and, and given a kind of score, if you will. And as I said in my talk, I don't want these things taken down. I would like to see threads of information wherein you append onto it, basically. This is challenged by X and it becomes, that's the wonderful thing of digital. We don't run out of pages. Um, whereas things which are stated as opinion, I think as long as they're clearly opinion, then people should be allowed you know, within the confines of the pre-existing law, as long as they're not um, racist or, or violent or something like that, opinions should be allowed um, without us worrying about mis and disinformation. There are other reasons we might want to restrict opinions, but yeah. Yeah. Kate, were you hoping to uh, chip yeah. in there? Yes. I love I, everything to, to dovetail on everything that's been said. Um, but I wanted to add this interesting, I've been thinking about this idea a lot because we're in um, a moment of heavy, heavy antitrust um, litigation in the US and there have been a lot of attempts to overlay traditional antitrust regulation onto platforms. And the biggest one that naturally comes to mind is Amazon, which has, um, which is a traditional marketplace. It is a retailer, right? Um, but what, what makes Amazon unique is that it also has third-party vendors, um, and the and it has hurt its third-party vendors quite a bit. I want to like if you ask the question from in an antitrust perspective is who is harmed um, by Amazon's stranglehold of the marketplace? It is actually its ability to quash third-party vendors or let them in or let them not in. But that also harms consumers, and there's a secondary harm that's then created. So there are two valences of third parties. There are third-party vendors, and then there's third-party consumers like you and I, okay? And we are harmed by the fact that, that they restrict the marketplace from third-party vendors. I am trying to write this paper right now that basically takes that argument and takes third-party vendors and says, the third-party vendors are the silkworms. The third-party vendors are the people, they are the people creating content. They are the people, they are the influencers They in the, in the speech marketplace. If you're taking it from the world of Amazon, to a world of like speech platforms, that is how you, that is the one-to-one. -one. And to make, turn that into kind of, to, and turn that into a free speech balance, the third party vendors are the speakers and the consumers are the listeners or the seeders and the leechers, whatever you kind of want to like, however you kind of want to like think about it. But if, but what is so interesting about this is that it is not a monolith of even who we are, right? of like we eat like the third party vendors and the consumers have two very different sets of interests 
that are served by Amazon, just as like an influencer has a very different set of interests than a than like someone who relies on Facebook for their news and information and pictures of their grandchild. And so this is like, this is kind of, this is kind of what I want. I think that we need to start to even like, when I say that we need to go back to first principles, we have to start breaking down just even some of the ways that we're framing these problems, as Andrew said, because we are not served very well by coming up with solutions that rely on these very thin undersourced definitions. Okay, well, thank you very much. Uh, if I could just come back to you, Chi, um, this would probably be the last question, I, I, I think. But um, the, the, I, and there's a, a question here from Anna Berrier, who's a parish councillor, uh, an activist from Bath. Um, and if I could just, um, uh, I, I'm not going to ask her a question uh, word for word, but um, we did, uh, as you know, there is this policy which some of the um, platforms operate to give politicians, um, and in particular uh, the President of the United States, uh, more scope, uh, if you like, to um, say things that might otherwise be, be taken down um, because uh, of the status that that individual has. But um, might there be a case the um, uh, policy that goes the other way around? Uh, in other words, do you think that maybe um, with politicians' um, official Twitter accounts or, or Facebook accounts and, or whatever it may be, that actually uh, tech firms would be entitled to focus on them more perhaps than on other people's uh, with a view to marking uh, potential fake news. Um, I mean, what, what, what would you think about that? Oh, oh so you should you, you, so give me the question as if I'm a sort of uh, an expert in politics uh, because I'm a politician, um, whereas my role is kind of minister for digital. It's actually around, you know, digital and I'm not, you know, setting out the rules for, but politics. But what I would say, you know, is that actually Facebook, for example, as a, as as they 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 don't, does actually, um, for example, allow you to say uh, that a politician should be killed when it might take it down to somebody else. So there are. I mean, when you when you say should it be allowed, I mean, you know, right now it's actually it's nobody is regulating this apart from the platform, so they are allowed to do uh, what they want, and they and that is exactly uh, what they what they do. Um, I think you know that some of the the, the questions that we're dealing with you know that we're, that we're talking with here are you know are, are, are complex and I'm not going to get, say the the answers in terms of it should be like this what we're, what I'm saying what we're saying and everybody is that we need to have a discussion as a, as a nation you know about how we want it to be uh, and that because the, the, the digital transformation has not been reflected in a regulatory framework. And I think that the point that Kate was making about, for example, uh, competition, I'm just in the US, the UK competition law, competition law does not been updated to reflect uh, the different nature of, com of, of competition. I mean, for example, we are, some of these companies are not competing on price. They are competing on the access to your data. Competition law has not been updated to reflect that. We've got a digital market unit, unit which has no powers you know, of, of enforcement. We have multi-multi-sided markets uh, uh, where, as uh, Kate suggested, that, you know, identify different types of harm. I mean, personally, um, I think this is the view. If you, have, if you have significant market power in a market, that is a harm, regardless of what you identify as a harm. So, and, you know, Amazon definitely falls foul of that. But I think there's also, there's also, you know, I would say that this isn't the first time that, as, that we've been faced with challenges of this type. I want, you know, Imagine, you know, in fact, we can see some of the debates around 
you know, translating uh, the Bible from Latin into into English. And, you know, what if people, when anybody could read the Bible and it wasn't just left to the Catholic, uh, to the uh, priest to interpret, there could be all sorts of misinformation. And you can talk about, again, you know, with the, with, the, with the Gutenberg Press. And, you know, we, we have been through this before. It's painful. I think it's particularly painful now because, um, you know, governments are showing, particularly uh, in the UK, uh, a lack of desire to, to act and to, to discuss and debate this. And wait, LSE is doing this this evening. But this is not, you know, this is not the, you know, not the end of the world. We have just got to, you know, debate and agree something that, amongst ourselves and, you know, make, make the change positive for the, for, for the many, <laughs> not the few. Well, I think that's a great point uh, on which to, to stop. Uh, I just want to thank you so much, Chi, uh, Andrew and Kate. It's been uh, a wonderful session, a very lively debate. And can I also thank all of you who asked questions? I, I Honestly, I could have picked out any, any number of those questions. They were excellent. Um, so uh, thank you very much indeed. I hope you have all found it very rewarding, as I have. Um, and we look forward to seeing you again here at other um, LSE events in the future. So thank you all very much indeed. Thank you.